Hey, Mom. Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are Good. you? Excellent, thanks. Um, so we're on our last part of India, which mm -hmm. um, one thing I wanted to say, though, is right at the start, she mentions how she's halfway through her trip to India, which is interesting for a few reasons, which means one, she's halfway through her whole trip at this point. And also two, it's actually quite similar to Italy where the first two thirds were about half and then the last third was the full other half. So it really seems like her experience is sort of like front loaded in each section and which, which is kind of interesting to me because it's very much like learning the ropes of this kind of lifestyle and then living it. And so it's more so she needs to focus on the upfront part, which is, which is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and um, right as we get started, Richard leaves, um, which is interesting as well, because she just finished saying goodbye to her husband after she said goodbye to David, and now Richard leaves too. So it's like he was the person... He was the man standing in, in that place of need for her, I feel like. And, yep. and he left right after these other men left herself. And now she's like really alone, it seems like um, to me. It's almost like it's the first time she's ever really alone in her whole life. Yeah, I, I, that's sort of what I get across as well. And, and I think she reflects on that too. She, she says that um, you know, she's been talking too much, both her whole life and, you know, specifically at the ashram. And she plans to be the quiet girl, that quiet girl, Yeah. which, which is also interesting because I think, you know, even the way she pictured herself being quiet was like in other people's eyes. It was like in reference to the people around her rather than just sort of what she wanted, which, um, which is interesting. Well, because she's a pleaser, she likes to please people. So she, um, when she had, when she's given that void of not having the male to please or the male who fills that void for her with Richard leaving, it's almost like she doesn't know how to fill that void now. So she wants to step into that other role that she thinks she needs to do. Yeah, and it's, um... And so it's interesting, you know, she has this idea of, okay, I need to be this, this quiet girl. I'm going to be this like very much, it's an experience I had. And I think many people have when they start a sort of spiritual journey of mm -hmm. what does it look like to be mindful? What does it look like to be spiritual? Oh, I need to be that quiet, like, you know, spirit that just like, you know, floats across the planet or whatever it is. And so that, that's very much like the idea she has is, oh, I want to be um, divine, let me be divine in the way I've seen on TV type thing, right? Right. Um, and then right away, she says, like, you know, whatever you want to call it, coincidence, God, her guru's guru or whatever, like, just kind of hits her over the side of the head, uh, using my terminology, because she's like, I'm going to be the quiet girl. And they're like, no, 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 you're going to be the hostess. Right. right? And so, <laughs> It's like, um, which, which is quite funny. And it's like, you know, she was born for this role, she says, like very much it makes sense to her. Um, but then it leads to a really, like, I think important and profound point. Again, you know, whatever people think of the idea of God, that if I were to have an idea of God, it would be this one, right? Like God dwells within you as yourself, exactly the way you are. Right. So people have all of these ideas of trying to get closer to God by being, yeah, this 
cartoonish or uh, the way they see like divinity or or spirituality mm-hmm. on TV. Oh, but it's it's really at the core a deep connection with yourself, right? The whole idea is, you know, God created you as you are. So figure out who that is and accept it and flourish and live that. And that's also, that's really something I think she struggles with and something I've struggled with as well is like, I have to really figure out how to flourish as myself, not how I quote, think I should be, right? I think that it's something that most people struggle with because society, um, from when we're born, we're given the expectations, whether it's parental expectations, um, societal expectations, school edu- expectations, expectations of our friends. Um, and then in relationships, there's always expectation. And so we put those expectations on ourselves um, and don't always live true to ourselves. And so I think this is where she's starting to realize that she's going to live true to herself because she has that void, because there aren't those people around her who've buffered her anymore. And if we can just backtrack a little bit, because we were talking about uh, the whole silence piece and the words and things like that. Elizabeth's a writer. Words are her life. I love the word. I write, I read. Books have been a part of my life my whole life. As long as I can remember, books were always my go-to. And something that um, you were saying about how we can't find that silence, you know, the silence piece and finding that there was something that stuck out to me that I really wanted to share. And it's that silence and solitude are universally recognized spiritual practices. And there are good reasons for this. Learning how to discipline your speech is a way of preventing your energies from spilling out of you through the rupture of your mouth exhausting you and filling the world with words, 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 instead of serenity, peace, and bliss. That's something I had to learn. That's something Elizabeth's learning. I think that's something that many of us learn and we're inundated with verbal diarrhea, for lack of a better way of saying it, whether it's the TV screaming at us or media or social media or whatever it may be. And so you know, when you can find that serenity, peace and bliss, I think it really leads to finding that God that dwells within you. When you can let go of the words, when you can let go of everything that is being thrown at us all the time. The white noise becomes not a bad thing, right? That quiet, that quiet noise that whatever it may be that you have in your mind can become a beautiful thing. Yeah. And that really resonates with me. I mean, like I literally used to just spill out everything that ever crossed my mind. It was the only way I knew how to communicate. And Mm -hmm. it's been such an important part for me to learn how to not need to do that or not even want to do that at some point. Mm -hmm. And that has, and like, there is like, you know, words are very powerful, right? Most people don't give them the respect they deserve, but like, when I say something, I can change your life either for the better or for the worse, depending on how I use them. And I think there's this real importance of being able to be quiet, right? And, and you know, I think it's a profound, um, a profound thing to have someone that you can like be silent with and like you're just in each other's presence. And, and that starts by being able to be silent with yourself and just be Absolutely. in your own presence. Absolutely. 
And, you know, um, you were talking about God and you shared that quote about how you find God within yourself. And um, she said, to know God, you need only to renounce one thing, your sense of division from God. However, God manifests for you. Some people, God is, is and, and when you start to recognize that you're not divided from God, that God is within you, source, universe, whatever the light, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so when you can accept that there's no division, that there is the connection, that's when your connection starts to become even greater. Mm. Yeah, I, and, and yeah, I, I don't know exactly what to say because in essence, I agree, but I obviously I still, I don't accept kind of like the word God as such. Well, that's why I use different terms for it because yeah. it manifests differently. I have a very good friend who believes in God. And whenever we're talking our spiritual talk or whatever you want to call it, I call it source. I call it universe. I call it different things depending on what I'm feeling. But ultimately I know it's what's what, right, what lives within me. Right. And for me, it's like the, it's the self, right? It's like the right. part of who I am. Right. right? And yes, like the, the whole, the idea of universality of that is, well, everyone has a self, right? And so that's kind of where the connection comes about. Speaking of sort of like, you know, people more broadly. So now, you know, we get to chapter 65 when she's, okay, now she's the hostess of these, of these <laughs> retreats, right? And yeah. so it's interesting, people are coming in and these are sort of like probably largely beginner uh, yoga people, beginner meditators, and they're coming in these retreats and she kind of talks about if I may add, they are silent retreats. Yeah. So it's, silent it's retreats. like going right in. Mm -hmm. And I definitely can empathize with people <laughs> having done a 10 day silent retreat myself. Um, but it's really interesting. She She's trying to be compassionate to these people because they're kind of, you know, people are freaking out about this thing or that thing. And she realizes these people are all just afraid, right? They're, mm -hmm. they've been, they've, committed to going in to themselves in silence and she says like it's very clear that they're afraid and also it's very clear how brave they are right and uh you know i think both are true to really be able to to know the fear so many people are so scared of being deeply honest with themselves of deep facing themselves and it does take courage to do that especially kind of i'd say the the older you get, the further removed you feel from yourself. And, and people can kind of know that you have to be really brave. And what really resonated for me is the idea that nobody can go with you, right? In your set, when you're facing yourself, when you're trying to deal with yourself, nobody can help you really. And that's something I really had to understand. I vividly remember an experience of mine in, you know, one of my tougher times I was like so upset that people couldn't help me at the moment, but then just realizing, but like most of the issues are in my mind right now. And it's not like they can come jump into here and help me. And it's like this recognition that no, no, no this is me and myself. Like I'm, I have to reconcile with myself. And it was just a really powerful thing that I think the way she captures it is nobody can go with you. Um, and, and, and she recognizes like these people are willing to to do that right 
Right. And, and as you're beginning that journey, it's, you're so used to having people come with you that, or try and help you that it's, you almost have to disconnect to the point that you can start to heal yourself because the expectation again around relationships is that we will help each other. And so being on, having been on both sides, the healing myself side, but also the wanting to help side, it's, it's, um, it's sometimes difficult to know how to navigate that. And so Elizabeth's learning how to navigate it because she does want to help, but she also knows what it feels like to do her own healing. Right. Yeah. And, and so then we get to this, she's discussing the Turiya state as it's called in the yoga tradition, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, which is basically, you know, the state of bliss, right? And she she says something like, where is your perfection? What is your happiness? What is your bliss? Where does that come from? And, you know, she talks about how it's this state of constant bliss. And it's this state that is associated with like the observer in you, right? Which is really interesting, because I'd relate that some people call it conscience, right? But it's like, when you do something, when you decide to not do what you think is right and these sorts of things, you can't escape your own knowledge of that fact, right? And so it's like there is this part of you that's watching your own thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she calls that God. I call that the conscience or the deepest self or whatever it is. And there's this idea of, well, the real goal is to be with that all of the time, be living as that. And it's really interesting. And, and when you are in that state, um, that's what's like, that's what living is, right? And, and she says that this is what everyone has come here for. And she means it in two different ways. She means that um, both like people have come to this retreat to try and find that, but also this is what life is about. Right. Right. Life, like the reason we exist is to be able to achieve that state. And that's really profound and important to me because, you know, I agree and I agree in a very different potential, like in a, in a very different framework of how do I get to that point. But it's again, the, the most important thing is an individual's selfish life of their happiness, their perfection, their bliss. And that, that's what we exist for. That's what we're here for. And how do we find that? How do we attain that state? And, you know, she, she shares what those words are around the Taria. And I think they're important to share because you talked about the selfish place that you go to. So the words are pure, clean, void, so empty, tranquil, breathless, selfless, endless, undecaying, steadfast, eternal, unborn, independent. He abides in his own greatness. So abiding um, in chapter 66. Okay. um, It's and it's it's taken directly from the yogic scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. And they say that anyone who has reached that state lives in this. So, you know, when you think about he abides in his own greatness, 
we live in a society that that can be misconstrued as being egotistical or um, someone who only focuses on themselves, whether, you know, whether it could be narcissistic or whatever, but that's not what it means. It means that you're recognizing the potential within you. You're letting go of, you're becoming unborn. You're becoming undecaying. You're letting go of all those things that have held you back so that you can embrace your greatness. And, you know, so that's where I think Elizabeth, you know, in what she's sharing here and the way that she's sharing it, she's bringing these words and these beliefs that can be taken out of context or can be taken and she's sharing it in a way that people who haven't lived it can understand it so that it can potentially open doors to healing and open doors to exploring things that you might be afraid of experiencing. Yeah, and, and I, I think, well, one, I wanna say it's important that like, I don't know if I agree with all of these words that she associates or that th this scripture associates and I'd have to kind of understand the context of the writings, but. Um, and, and it's also not always taking the words that literal, right? So those words, I'm not taking them all. If you don't take them all literal the way we've been trained to understand these words and you take them in the context of what is the end result you want, right? Right, and I think he abides in his own greatness is the part I focus on, right? Is just right. being fully aware that you're not separate from your greatness. You are your greatness. You Absolutely. can be great and you can be full in this sort of way, um, which I think is important. Um, and then, you know, so she talks about this kind of what, what does it mean to be in the Turiyat or Turiya state, uh, abiding, abiding in your own greatness. And then we get in the very next section, she talks about this first kind of transformational experience she has while meditating. Um, you know, and again, she uses terminology and, and perhaps has a view that I don't agree with, but have, I've experienced similar phenomenon in meditation, right? So she talks about being transported through the portal of the universe mm -hmm. and taken to the center of God's palm. Um, and she talks about, you know, all of chapter 67 is about this experience and her trying to explain to others what this experience is like. And I understand it's extremely difficult um, to do so. Um, and, you know, she, she highlights that there's no more identity, no more wants, um, which might seem odd to people. And like, I don't think it's good to have no identity or good to have no wants, but it's, it's not quite the way people understand it generally, right? And it's like, you don't, identify with anything, which means you can be whatever you want. Absolutely. Um, you can, it's like having this kind of baseness that you can then go anywhere. And, and in terms of the actual experience, you know, I'm trying to still figure out exactly what's going on. Cause I think these experiences are still psychological phenomenon. And I, like, I don't think there's some divinity that's coming in and zapping my mind or anything like that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But it's this really, it's almost as if like your, your consciousness spreads out and is your entire, like, it's almost as if you are your mind just like 
it, and it's and it's this bizarre experience. It's extremely hard to explain. Um, so maybe I'll just stop trying. But uh, you know, I want to <laughs> say I definitely resonate with this experience, well, and it's something akin to sort of, you know, when when I'm looking out at something and I unfocus my eyes and I just see like everything, but nothing's in focus. It's almost like becomes one. Yeah. It's almost like my mind is doing that. I'm just kind of not focused on any one thing, but I'm focused on the fact that I can be even aware of anything at all. And so it's like this spreading out. And then there's these weird phenomenon that come with that experience. Well, it's part of the unlearning, right? I think that Elizabeth's recognizing that you have to, we go, if you look at it from point A to point Z, right? Elizabeth was living, let's say, she started in A and she ended up at Z. And she's realizing that Z wasn't necessarily the best place for her to be either. So she's trying to figure out how to get back into the middle to the J-K-M-N-L-O, right? She's trying to figure out how to get back in that middle. And one of the things that resonated for me when she was talking about her whole experience with the new people and how she was able to finally feel that really transcendental meditation was that she first started to feel like she was riding on the waves of what the other people were doing. So that to me almost... um, reflected her finally letting go. And I've spoken before about that letting go to let in. And it was like she was finally starting to let go of everything she thought it should be and watching and, you know, maybe unfocusing and taking in what everybody else was doing around her. And that gave her the ability to now ride on their wave is sort of how she said it, to be able to go to that next place. And I think, you know, I often uh, try and draw analogies between someone's like meditative experience and their experience in the real world. Mm -hmm. And often it's sort of the, the focus that I come across is, okay, if you learn how to meditate like this, then you can be in the real world that way. But I'm trying to help people understand that the opposite is also true. And so it's really interesting. She's in the meditation retreat being kind of a passive observer, which then allows her to be a passive observer in her mind, right? Right. And so we just talk like, and these these people fluttering in and out of her room, let's say, it's a similar experience of the thoughts that flutter in and out of your mind. And you can't control them all of the time and you just have to watch them pass through. Um, And again, we talked just earlier about like that monitoring that 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 conscience is God or is the deepest self. And that's kind of in meditation when you have these experiences, that's what you're becoming totally. And Mm -hmm. so it's like you're behind all of your own thoughts, just watching them go by. And but and so like you're the watcher of the thoughts, whereas so many people associate with their thoughts. And it's really interesting. And then Well, it's the reflection piece as well. I've had experiences where I started to question my own behavior and I can remember specific instances where I felt like I was sitting outside of my body watching the experience so then I could better understand it and start to create the change. 
And that's what's really interesting. Why I think I have like a, a unique perspective on a lot of this stuff is because for my whole life until I was 24, I was always in that state. And I had to learn how to get into my own state because I was always watching myself in this weird sort of state, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting. Um, and, and so then she talks about, um, you know, she has this experience and it feels so profound and she's what, like, she's just kind of passively, uh, passively observing it. And then, you know, her identity drifts away that she's a woman, she's American, she's talkative, she's a writer. It all seems silly. Like who cares? She just is right. Right. Who cares about these labels. And that's, you know, when it's no more identity, I think that's really important. Right. It's like, cause then if you lose one of those things, you feel so lost but it's like no like I'm just me and I can be whatever I want type thing but then she starts to crave it she well, starts but she talked before that she talks about that she's a drop she knows that the drop merges into the ocean but few know that the ocean merges into the drop so she is now recognizing that she is now she's a separate entity and you can merge in and become part of the whole, but that the whole also becomes part of you, right? And she's, she's understanding that it's not, either, there's no either or. Like we live, our, we live so much of our life thinking there's only, there's only black or white, but when we can recognize the gray and let the gray be a part of our life, the gray is actually that centerpiece, right? That part where you get into the gray. The gray is in, in here. The gray is your conscience, right? See that, I don't know if I agree with. Uh, of um, course you don't. <laughs> um, that's, you know, I think I could, with enough thought, I could figure out like the exact way in which I view that. Um, cause I have had experiences of feeling like, you know, myself has dissolved and I'm just part of the flow, but I don't think that's the appropriate state. I don't think that's the ideal state personally. You right. have to be able to organically move in and out of it. It's like Bruce Lee spoke about water and how water takes on many forms, right? So it's about allowing yourself to organically move in and out of it. Because we are still human. We do still live on this planet. We are part of the human existence. So it's how we can organically move from move through it. Yeah, and see, this is where you and I definitely drift apart. Because <laughs> we're saying like still as if there's anything else. And I only think there is this existence. So we'll get back to the book before we go too off the rails <laughs> in our different metaphysical views. Um, okay. But so she's in this experience in the meditation and she starts to crave it. And as soon as she starts to crave it, it disappears, right? Because then instead of being the observer, you want it, you jump into it. And as soon as that happens, you start to lose it. Um, and that's because you're no longer just observing the experience. And as soon as that happens, it drifts away. But then, you know, at the end, she summarizes by saying, like you may return here once you have fully come to understand that you are always here. Right. right? And, and so that's the thing. That state is always in you. It's always with you and you can return to it whenever you want. And so there's no need to crave it. It's just 
that is existence. That is what living is if you can attain it properly. Right. And she said that if I believed that this state of bliss was something that could be taken away from me, then obviously I didn't understand it yet. Right. And therefore I wasn't, a, I wasn't ready to inhabit it, inhabit it completely. She's still looking at it like it's a separate entity from herself. Right, exactly. She's not understanding that it's with her always. And, and it's this- just her state of mind and her frame of being that's going to bring it to fruition or put it down or not allow it out, right? And this is sort of the main thing that has me more sympathetic to sort of Eastern religion versus Western religion. Mm-hmm. Cause Western religion, I mean, you know, I think Eastern religion has a lot of its own issues and I'm, I like rationality and uh, these sorts of things. But um, the Western religions very much have like human imperfection and like we're separate from this goodness. And like, we just have to degrade ourselves. Like it's almost like very degrading. First, mm-hmm. Whereas this, the more Eastern tradition seems to be more, no, no, no that greatness is in me. Absolutely. Finding that connection. And so I really like that um, idea. And well, then- the Eastern religions, they don't, they say, accept, don't beat yourself up. Right? Accept it. Learn to live with it. Learn to move beyond it as opposed to analyzing it and punishing yourself for it, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, And so now we get to, we're like quite close to the end of India already, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. This last third of the experience goes by by quite quickly. You know, she's, it's, you know, we haven't talked much about the retreats as such, but you know, she's now playing hostess, these retreats, they come in and they leave. Um, They thank her, they do end up saying like, oh, she was the quiet woman in the back of the room, she ended up having that presence for them. And they felt supported by her. So it's really nice. But like, again, that's not really the focus of these sections. It's kind of in passing, she talks about them. You know, then what she focuses on is, again, these experiences that um she's having that she's um meditating with and she's having all different sorts of meditative experiences and there's this sentiment that there she won't really know how much is changing until she leaves and she can kind of see the way she interacts with the world differently which is again very much in line with you know my view of how this relates to psychology because it's when you're meditating, when you're basically like paying attention to your own thinking, you, you can change the way your thought patterns behave. And it's only when you then try and interact with the world again, that you see, oh, wow, I'm different. Like my patterns are different. I'm behaving differently. And it's really, it's really interesting. And that's what makes meditation and retreats and, and four months at an ashram so powerful is it can really rewire yourself. Well, and I don't, I mean, just to um, share here for the, for the people who are listening, because not everybody can do a 10 minute, a 10 day silent retreat. Not everybody can go to an ashram for four months. You can do this learning on your own at home. Yeah. I did it all on my own at home. Mm-hmm. It took me maybe longer than the four months would have taken me, but I was committed to it and I knew that something had to give 
because I wasn't happy where I was. I thought I was happy, but I wasn't happy where I was. And so I let go. You have to be willing to let go of what you believe to be real for you in that moment and use the resources that are available to you. And you can do it no matter where you are and what your situation, you can do it. I want to share something that I found quite humorous while I was reading it. Yeah. Um, because, you know, she loves words. She wanted to be, she wanted to be the quiet girl in the back of the room. She finally became that person without even realizing it. But she acknowledges that the sentences still form in my mind and thoughts still do their little show off dance. But I know my thought patterns so well now that they don't bother me anymore. My thoughts have become like old neighbors, kind of, kind of bothersome, but ultimately rather endearing. Mr. and Mrs. Yickety Yak and their three dumb children, blah, 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 and blah. But they don't agitate my home. There's room for all of us in this neighborhood. She's recognizing that they're never going to go away. She lives with these next door neighbors. But she's not going to let them intrude on her peace, her sense of peace, her sense of bliss, the way they have in the past. She's learning how to handle them, how to manage them, and how to tell them, no, you can't come in right now. Right. She's learning how to close the drawers and the door and close the drapes so the neighbor can't look in. Right. I think, yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it actually came up. I was talking to uh, my sister, your daughter, uh, yesterday, talking about <laughs> the importance of. Thank you for uh, clarifying who your sister is. <laughs> getting for the, for the listeners. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and about how it is so important that to get to know your thought patterns, right? And it was something I really struggled with is like, so then, oh, it's you again oh, anxiety, here you are again, right? And so before mm -hmm. we started recording, you asked me how I'm doing and I, I responded with, ah, right? Because like right now, part of my mind's going really haywire, but it's like, I'm, I'm used to it. It's a little frustrating still. And that's, you know, something I'm working through, but it's like my, my mind can go quite speedy and it's hard to get a handle on sometimes, but I recognize it now. I like, it's a well-known thing and it's just, you know, understanding it and working with it. And so I think that's really important. And on your point um, that anyone can do this, you don't need to do a 10 day meditation retreat, four months in an ashram. That's really true. All you need is to be introspective and honest. And reflective. Yeah, that's what I meant by yeah. introspective, right? You yeah. just have to look at yourself deeply and honestly. And face your fear. Yeah. Embrace your fear. Embrace your fear. And I think the, it's such an important point is this uh, Mr. and Mrs. Yakety Yak, because mm -hmm. so many people, they get, they, they almost like hit a plateau or they struggle because they don't, they, again, it's comes to, well, you know, on TV, the, the spiritual people, they don't have any uh, talking in their mind. They're just blissful and nothing ever goes through, but it's like, no, when stuff goes through, they can just let it pass. That's the key. It's not that nothing ever comes up. And I tried to do that and it was not pleasurable. Let me tell you. Um, and, you know, we talked about not getting stuck in the minutia, right? Our brain is wired 
I believe the brain is wired for many people to get stuck in that minutia. Elizabeth used to get stuck in the minutia. It's really about just letting it go, let yeah, it I go. I don't know if the brain is like biologically wired, but we definitely get wired to right. it's also control. If I right. can, oh, there's 500 different things. If I can just figure out each little one and you get really into it because to abstract out, you have less control over the entirety of something, right? You um, know, yeah, she talks about Mr. and Mrs. Yakety Yak. When I started doing, when I did my, I did work with a woman um, over quite a period of time. And I, uh, she recommended that I give my ego a name. <laughs> and I gave my ego a name. The name doesn't matter, but I don't even know where the name came from or how it was related, but I gave my ego that name. And as I started to become more aware of the ego, the part that wanted to get stuck on the minutia, I would tell her, it was a female, my ego, to go away to be quiet, to like stop bothering me, whatever I needed to do to keep it down. I don't need to do that anymore, but it was, again, it's a long process. Anybody who's expecting this to be some sort of short-term aha realization, wake up the next morning and everything is, is, is bliss, that's not reality. Even the people, whether you've read the Dalai Lama or you know any of the um, spiritual leaders in the world who have done a lot of writing, um, they all say it's not a forever fix. Things are always changing. And just when you think you might have gotten to that point, and this is what Elizabeth shows us, she thinks she gets to that point and then something rears its ugly head and she might not be back to point A where she started, but she does go backwards a little bit. But it, and it's easier for her to get to that state of bliss again, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I'll just, as, as I often do, add a stipulation that I, I have a different use of the word ego. And I, I, you actually once recommended I name my ego. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I refused because I didn't want to feel separate from it. And I actually found I had to reconcile with what I then called my ego, but now I have a different view of what my ego is and what that kind of more fearful uh, entity was. Right. Um, but so I just want to add that stipulation. And I will add that my ego still lives in me. Yeah. My ego just doesn't have the same control over me. Right. But we have a different view of what ego is. So, okay. Well, again, put <laughs> in that. For our continued discussion series, once we're finished the book, <laughs> okay. we, can, we can see all of the terms we disagree upon. Okay. Um, but so then we get, she's done these meditations and she, you know, I'm, I'm at the, towards the end of chapter 68 and she has this awareness. She's, uh, she has thrilled anticipation and she goes for a walk and she's like, I'm in India. I'm in my sandals and I'm in India. And it just hits her how wonderful this current moment is. She starts running down the path and she kisses a eucalyptus tree. And then it talks about how, you know, this is the nightmare of every American parent who thinks their child's gonna run away to India and start making love to a tree. And it's <laughs> funny, but then what's really important to me is, but it was pure, this love that I was feeling, it was mm -hmm. godly. 
I looked around the darkened valley and I could see nothing that was not God. I felt so deeply, terribly happy. I thought to myself, whatever this feeling is, this is what I have been praying for. And this is also what I've been praying to. Absolutely. And to me, that captures the essence of what many people call God. I think calling it God makes it more difficult to attain. And she talks about how Buddhism also like holds that or the, the Vipassana Buddhists. But it's this ultimate joy, this profound happiness and satisfaction and deep just contentment. But it's more than contentment, like that feeling. That's what the point of life is. That's what we're aiming at. That's what we all want to experience. And that is what people, if you actually can recognize that, I think it makes it a lot more attainable. And I, and you know, that's why I'm so like, I push back on some of these other terms because I think they cloud the ability to get this because let's just like, I like that this is this feeling, this profound personal selfish happiness that she has in the middle of an ashram in India at night alone, like that she could experience that it's glorious. And I think for many people, myself included, the first time I had that experience, it changed my life. Like it literally changed my life because I felt so profound a happiness that well, personally, I became addicted to it and I just had to find it, right? But that's not everyone's response. But I think when people have that experience, they like, that's the meaning of life. Like the meaning of life is to be able to live in that experience, to have that experience. And it's a moment, one, one of the way Ayn Rand's, one of the ways Ayn Rand puts it is just like, this is worth living for. Like life is worth it just because I right now can have this experience and this feeling. Um, and that's why it's so important just to embrace every moment. You know, they say the past is the past, the future is the future. We don't know those things. What we know is where we are right now in this moment. I am watching your joy, David, and it is filling me with joy. That's this moment, mm -hmm. right? And if we, can, if we can let go of all the stuff, right? She's recognizing that. You're recognizing that. I recognize that. That when you can let go all of the stuff that clouds us, we can just be in that moment, whether it's in an ashram, in India, on the ground, in the dark, kissing a eucalyptus tree, or watching your son speak about that beautiful, blissful moment. Just being in that moment is, that's that, like to your point, that's what it is. That's it, that's it. Right. And I think it's so important to juxtapose, if that's the right word, this with what we just recently talked about, which is each person's experience of that will be different. So it's not Absolutely. that she's thinking you have to go to an ashram no. and kiss a tree. It's like that experience is for each person unique. What are the things that will get them that? But they need to really care about, well, no, I want that. I want to find that. I want to be with that experience. How do I get it? How do and I you find know what? it? I take it seriously. I've had that experience driving south on the 404, listening to a song that resonated for me in that moment and watching the sky separate and 
literally on the east side of the 404, it was black, black sky. And on the right side, the clouds separated and the sun started coming out. And I felt that moment. So you can have it wherever you are if you're aware of where you are and you're open to receiving it. And I, I don't remember, I can't find it right now, but she does capture that point somewhere in these chapters as well of like everyone has had, you know, a brief moment of that experience where the world just felt right, that everything feels like it's aligned, that you just have this pro and then it, it you know, for, it's a very fleeting moment for some people. And well, there's something I just came across. She says, live on that shimmering line between your old thinking and your new understanding, always in a state of learning. In the figurative sense, this is a border that is always moving as you advance forward in your studies and realizations. And it goes on, but you know, it's that border and you can, you can take it with you wherever you go, right? Right, and so that I think, you know, it, I think you moved into chapter 69, which is about her word. She says she finally finds her word, which, you know, jumping back to Italy, trying to figure out in Rome what her word is. And she finds a word, antivas, uh, antivasin, something mm -hmm. like that, which is that he who lives on the border or whatever. And so that's what she's saying is like about being in that balance. And there's this, I really like the idea of the yin yang and the balance between order and chaos. Absolutely. And if you're in too much chaos, it's not enjoyable. But if you're stagnant, if everything is known and orderly, that's also not good. And it's mm -hmm. about being in that state of balance. I think, which I really like that she highlights and she found, um, she found like her word. And, and, and I think, again, this whole book is about her trying to find that balance to explore one extreme, explore the other extreme. And then we'll really see in the next section, her trying to find the balance. You know, when you talk about the balance, she says, you want to stay near the core of the thing, right in the hub of the wheel, not at the outer edges where all the wild whirling takes place, where you can get frayed and crazy. The hub of calmness, that's your heart. That's where God, or whatever you'd like to call it, lives within you. So stop looking for answers in the world. Just keep coming back to that center and you'll always find peace. Whether you're driving on the 404, whether you're sitting having a chat with someone who's important to you, whether you're out for a walk, whether you're in India in an ashram kissing an eucalyptus tree, if you can keep that with you and take it with you wherever you go, you will always find and be able to go back to that bliss, right? And, and she talks like in a, in a concrete example of that, you know, her experience at the end of our last episode with her husband on the top of the ashram, that's like the bliss of her relationship that she can always go back to. Right. And so it's about kind of, having more and more of those moments and eventually kind of almost or, or living in that experience and living in those moments. But if you slip out of it, like it's okay as well, right? Right. It's giving yourself permission to be human. You know, we are all human. We have those moments of human frailty or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, Elizabeth's really learning to give herself permission to live in those moments and she's teaching us how to move beyond them and not to lose, but not to lose sight of them because they are still an important part of who we are. Yeah. And so we're basically 
you know, we're almost at the end of India now, and I have just two more points I wanted to hit on before we then can kind of wrap up the section as a whole. Okay. Um, I don't remember where um, this, this specific, it's somewhere in chapter 70, I think, and, but she says there are consequences for every action in the long run, which I think mm -hmm. is so important for people to understand. And a lot often there, there's a quote I really like, I don't remember where it's from, but it's, we are punished by our sins, not for them. And so the idea is when, again, there is this conscience in us, there is this, um, you know, part of us that is always watching that knows what we're doing, we can't actually lie to ourselves, no. it's not possible. And so when you take an action that you know to be wrong, when you do something, whatever it is, it eventually will cause you problems eventually. And it could be 10 years, it could be one year, it could be 30 years, but there's no such thing as getting away with a lie. And, and especially because you know when you've done the thing. And so I, I just wanted to highlight that. I think that's another, with a lot of this book, right? I think she's just so deeply honest with horse herself that she gets to really fundamentally important truths um, and, you know, agree or disagree with her exact framing of it. The, the idea is she's just so introspective that she does come upon these things. She knows she cannot avoid uh, a consequence of an action she's taken. Well, and, you know, linked with the consequence, there's also the accountability, right? So if we can start to heal when we can hold ourselves accountable. And that's what she's realizing as well right? Mm -hmm. That we have to recognize that we are making our choices. And we talked a lot about choices earlier in our, in our earlier recordings. We are making the choices. So there are the consequences, but there are also the accountabilities. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and so the, the last point, so the last point I wanted to make, which I think is like, sort of the perfect thing to end India on personally. Um, she says that, you know, she goes and she meditates uh, overnight waiting for her flight and she feels the world halt like she wanted when she was nine, right? And that's just like, she spent all of this time to find out how to, let's call it, get control of the world, to pause the world. But it's really just about learning that you can pause yourself right? You mm -hmm. can just, but it's not pause necessarily. It's just being present. And, you know, she spends now we're at eight months into a journey of self-discovery. She's realizing that, you know, when, when I'm a nine-year-old, when she was a nine-year-old, when many people just in their life, when they want to try and get a handle on life, they do it by frantically trying to catch up with all of it, frantically trying to rein it all in. But it's, it's no, the way to do it is to sit in your own stillness, to sit in your own quiet. And then you find like, oh, I am separate. I can like live my own calm life, right? Um, I say there's an analogy I use. I used to feel like I was like a, like a buzzing bee. And I was so, I wanted to like, I, I wanted to, let's call it be more than the world for lack of a better term. And so I needed to be faster than everything going on so that I could get ahead. 
But then I realized, and I think a lot of really successful people realize the opposite is actually true. And I think that's what she's realizing. So now I say, I'm more like a massive tanker ship and I move so slowly and I just am so purposeful in what I'm trying to do that everything else happens to move around me and it's irrelevant to my path and my journey, mm-hmm. right? And, and if they intersect with me, I have to deal with it for the moment. Okay, that's fine. But it's just going down the path I need to take and feeling that, you know, the it's like my world is slow, right? My world is calm because I'm present in it. I have my apartment. And so it feels like, you know, the world has halted and you can go on a one week vacation and halt the rest of the world and it doesn't fall apart. She doesn't have to be the person spinning it spinning the top of the world like she talked about in an earlier chapter and so I think it's really like a great thing for her to realize as she then now basically tries to as we'll see in Indonesia now re-enter not her normal life but the world um, after four months in this ashram which um, I'm really excited to to see how that goes as well. And she said something that jumped that really res- jumped out to me when you spoke about being that tanker ship, moving slowly and things will come at you. She said flexibility is just as essential for divinity as is discipline. So being that discipline tanker on your path, there are going to be things that come at us. There's going to be those those glitches, the storm, the wave, whatever it may be. And the flexibility piece is so important because we we have to be able to move with the tide and then find our way back to our path. And I think that that's where a lot of the times the problems come because when we're not flexible and we can't move with the tide then we can't find our way back to our path. Right, I think- We get rocked completely off our path, right? Or we just get frantic that, yeah, we get frantic that, oh no, I left the path slightly, right? Right. And it's the same idea of like, oh no, I shouldn't be thinking, but there's a thought. It's like, no, no, oh, you're that thought again, right? Very similar. Absolutely. Um, And so now she's, you know, she- is boarding her plane for her flight to Indonesia. Next next uh, episode, we'll be doing the first third of Indonesia. But, mm-hmm. you know, what, what did you think of India as a whole? Um, for me, I, it was extremely different from what I expected. I was kind of skeptical of her presentation of things as a whole, mm-hmm. but I still found her to be extremely profound in her understanding of herself. And so, you know, I think many points in these last three episodes, I highlighted, like, this is a fundamental truth, as far as I'm aware, and she figured it out. I don't agree with her explanation, but it shows, like, if the most important thing is to just be deeply honest and dedicated to understand yourself and you will come to these, I mean, she's probably a quite intelligent person as well, but come to these realizations, right? Absolutely. Um, And so I've I've been very impressed by her ability to do that. And again, it's like her, her showing us that actual process is extremely valuable. It helped me understand these things in a way I don't think I would have without this book. And so reading it now, you know, I, you and I talked in another episode, it's almost like I am a bit sort of dismissive of her approach because I think I've 
I think I have the same understanding, but like a deeper understanding of the reasons. Um, so I don't take her, I take her with some salt, let's say, or a few grains of salt, but I still found it like an interesting introspective trip, let's say. And I would agree with everything you just said. Um, I found parts of it frustrating for me, I think because of where I am in my, in my journey right now um, and the learning and the introspection and reflection that I've done to this point. I read this book about almost 20 years ago when it first came out. I read it when it first came out. So it's, yeah, it is about almost 20 years ago. Um, and when I read it at that point, India was my favorite part of the book. And I think I mentioned that, I've mentioned that to you, David. I don't know if I've mentioned it in this. Um, and I think that this part of the book is what started me and gave me the courage to start that part of my journey. Um, I'm very excited to read about Indonesia now because I know that you know, as you go on that journey and you let go of your fears and you embrace the unknown, I'll call it, that's when you can start to go to that place of balance. And so I'm excited to find out now to see what my, what my understanding and how I, how I integrate Indonesia being in a different place. Yeah. I'm very excited to see Indonesia as well. Like we talked about, um, I feel like I couldn't appreciate it for a long time because I was so far away from balance. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see that, uh, how I experience that now. It's also interesting, yeah, you're frustrated with India and I'm sort of dismissive of India, right? And so it's, um, but, but similarly to you, the reason I wanted to do this, the reason I think it's so valuable is I still think this is a fantastic spark Absolutely. for people. And Absolutely. The, the deep honesty she has in her exploration and the way you can actually see what it's like to be honest with yourself in your own mind because that's what she lets us in on. And so I, I think, again, I, I wouldn't have this be the end point for anyone, but I Absolutely. really most people should read this as a starting point. Absolutely. Uh, and um, if I can just interject here and say that um, the way that Elizabeth writes is very approachable for the mass media, for the masses. Mm. So I've read other books by... I've read books by the Dalai Lama. I've read other kinds of books by people talking about similar things to what we've learned in, in, while we've been in India with Elizabeth. Um, and sometimes they're harder to um, integrate as a lay person. So she's written it in a way that can touch so many people. Because you don't have to be the smartest person to read this and understand it. You can read, it's a novel. It's a, it's a biography that's been written as a novel, I'll call it, whatever, however you want to phrase it, right? So it's written in a way that most people will be able to find something that resonates for them in that moment. But it also plants a lot of seeds that become the sparks when you start to experience other things. And that's the beauty of this book. Yeah, and I'll add that like the other reason it's valuable akin to a novel is because novels, you get to see into the character's thought process. Absolutely. And, so, and, and she lets us into her thought process in journals and meditations and stuff. 
And so it's very rare that you really understand it. And she does do a quite a quite a good job of doing that slowly and thoroughly. Well, it's almost like you're sitting and having a coffee with her and she's just telling you about her experience, right? And mm-hmm. that's the easiest way for, for most of us to learn and hear is have people just tell us, not talk at us, but share, right? Yeah. And so, so that ends India for us in the next so, episode. As yeah. always, I have my final, my final quote from the book Sure. to end it off. You take whatever works from more. Oh, and this actually is a good segue from our, what we were just talking about is a good segue into it. You take whatever works from wherever you can find it and you keep moving toward the light. And that's how, that's one of the final quotes that she put as she was on her flight leaving India. You take whatever you works for from wherever you can find it and you keep moving toward the light. Whatever that may be in that moment, whatever that spark may be, and it's going to keep changing. That's one of the beautiful things that I want to just reiterate about anybody on their journey. It's going to be different every single day than it was the day before. But it's about finding that light, even in the differences, right? Yeah, and I, I essentially agree, but I don't necessarily agree <laughs> as with many of the these points. But um, yeah, I'll just say it's find whatever works, but like I'd, I'd want to be clear on what it means for something to work. But yeah, the idea is you have to be open to experience, have an active mind and see you know, what helps me achieve the goals I'm aiming at? What helps me get closer to that profound feeling of love and happiness? Right. Um, and, and yeah, there are many resources. And I, and I would, you know, say, especially many of my current circle, like this is one, right? And they might not be open to that, um, but, but they should be, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Okay, David.